So it's Easter, my favorite day of the year. And the reason it's my favorite day is because everything hinges on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to the classical passage dealing with the uh, resurrection in the New Testament, which would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this morning we're going to read uh, verses 1, and I'm going to extend it a little bit to verse 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to me the most pitied. I can't stop here. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits, of those who have fallen asleep. This is God's Word. Let us pray together now. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. It truly is Your Word because it speaks to us. It has power. It has the ability to distinguish uh, in our hearts between uh, your reality and our fantasy. It has the ability to give light to us in our darkness. It has the power 
to rebuke us. It has the power to correct us. It has the power to instruct us in right living. And so, Father, we thank you that your word is alive. It's powerful. It's sharp. And we pray that your word, as it goes forth today, will glorify the Lord Jesus. May the light of the Holy Spirit shine upon him and show us his beauty and his glory. And may that beauty and glory be reflected back to us and be seen in us for his name's sake. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're talking about the resurrection of the, Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're looking at the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there are three things that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The historicity or the historical reality of his resurrection. Second, we're going to be looking at the meaning of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, meaning for him as the God-man, but also meaning for us. And then lastly, we're going to look at the experience or our experience of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is an, a Russian proverb that is quite ancient that goes something like this. Zrividye na prividye. Now, I don't have the gift of tongues. That is Russian. And most of you, though you not heard uh, a boy from West Tennessee speak Russian, uh, you've heard what it means. The meaning of what I just said is trust but verify. Trust, but verify. And in, in the context it has been used most often is verifying, as Jimmy Carter called it, nuclear weapons. But uh, we all know it as nuclear weapons uh, that enemies may possess. And so the necess necessity of the historical verifiable facts of the founder of Christianity is, cannot be overestimated. All systems of belief, of all the other systems of belief, Christianity is the only one that insists that its truths must be founded on the historical existence of a person named Jesus and that further he uh, and his, the, uh, he, he did in space, time, and history all the things he claimed and that are claimed of him. If Jesus did not die and then rise again, as the Apostle Paul says, we of all men are most um, pitiable. And so when we talk about the historicity of Jesus and we talk about trust but verify, some people think faith is really just a leap into the dark. But rather, faith is a leap into the light. Although Mark Twain is reputed to have said, faith is believing in what you know ain't true. Though cleverly put, I doubt that it is true of any person of faith, however unschooled or untutored. There is nothing to be gained by clinging to a myth or a falsehood or a lie. When life is raw and wretched, as it is these days, the stability to be found is the truth wherever that may lie. And so as we think about the necessity of the historical, verifiable fact 
as the foundation for the Christian faith, then it is important to us to go back and look at the historicity or the historical reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because those facts, while not beyond absolute proof, are compelling. There is a historical reality to the person and work of Jesus Christ that is more probable, probable than any of the alternatives. So let's talk about that. First, we know that Jesus was buried. That fact is established because Pilate gave up the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. This is found in Matthew 25. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, the 70, the Jewish rulers. He was a person, probably of wealth and influence, sympathetic to the life and ministry of Jesus. And he took and placed the body along with a guy you heard about in John chapter 3, Nicodemus. They placed him in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. So it was easily identifiable. It was easily located. And he did this. And it would be highly unlikely that anybody on the Sanhedrin council would do this generous act. But we do know that he was a secret disciple of Jesus, and he feared the Jewish leaders. So we know that Jesus was dead. We know that he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And if you were making this up, if this was fiction, you would have never included Joseph of Arimathea as the one who would provide the tomb for Jesus. Those two things don't add up. So... Not only do we have the burial of Jesus, but we have the empty tomb. All four Gospels give us the truth that Jesus' tomb was empty. And you can't move from being buried to being bodily raised without vacating the tomb. And the first witnesses of the empty tomb were women. And women at this time and in this culture could not be eyewitnesses, that is, their testimony would not be legal or valid in court. But they were written off by the culture and even by some of the disciples as grief-stricken, frightened women cast aside, living in some sort of fantasy, that this was nonsense. Luke 24, 11 addresses that. And so the Jewish polemic against uh, the empty tomb is actually presupposed when they made the statement that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. In other words, they wouldn't make that statement unless the tomb was empty. Now we all know that the angel rolled away the stone of the tomb, not in order for Jesus to get out, but in order for us to see in and see the reality that he is not here. He is risen. And I think there's a beautiful image in the tomb, uh, in the Gospels, where it speaks of the angels at the place where Jesus was laid to be buried, sitting on either end. What a beautiful picture of the, the mercy seat in the Old Testament, where the cherubim, that is the two angels, faced one another on top of the Ark of the Covenant when the sacrificial uh, sacrifice was offered and the priest sprinkled the blood. He sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And here are two angels telling us the sacrifice is gone. He is not here. He's alive. He's risen. 
Now, we do know this. If the Jewish authorities knew where the body was, they would have produced it easily. Uh, also, the Romans uh, feared for the body being stolen, and they placed guards at the tomb. And so we all know the tomb is empty. That is an established historical fact. Number three, Jesus is seen alive in his body, though it's a different body, after his death. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15. He is seen by individuals. He's seen by groups. That included uh, Jesus' followers, skeptics, unbelievers, enemies. The gospel narrative said they saw him, they heard him, they touched him, they ate with him. Uh, Jesus met with people in twos. He met with individuals. He met with over 500 people. He even met with Thomas and let Thomas put his hands in his nail-scarred hands and saw. And so the tomb is empty. The Lord was seen and witnessed, and the plausibility is very high by anyone's estimate that these things are true. Um, the best case for the historicity of Jesus' res resurrection uh, is the origin and shape and continuity of the early church. Christianity, and it boggles the mind of historians and sociologists, how a little bitty Galilean movement in some backwater Roman province uh, with a crucified leader soon became a religion that dominated Roman, the Roman Empire. And what drove this early church, as we're going through the book of Acts, you're going to see this come up over and over again. What drove the mission, the preaching, the hopes, was the belief that God had raised Jesus from the dead. And time to time, alternative theories are dragged up. Time to time, people will say, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He swooned. In other words, he faked it. He swooned, they took the body down, they hit him, and he lived uh, a long life and eventually died. But that would be terribly inconsistent with crucifixion. Uh, you can't swoon a death hanging on the cross where the spear penetrated his side and both blotter, uh, water and blood came forth the sign of death. Also, people will drag up the old idea that all of these visions of Jesus or Jesus being seen after his resurrection were simply hallucinations. It's like taking mind-altering drugs. These people hallucinated. What they thought they saw was really a vision created and concocted in their own head, in their own minds. And you might at least say there could be at least some plausibility to one person doing that. But 500 people at the same time, in the same place, seeing the re reality of the risen, bodily, resurrected Jesus, having the same hallucination at the same moment, it takes more faith to believe that than it ever would that Jesus is alive. How do 500 people have the same hallucination? How does a vision eat fish and drink? So how could anybody survive cruci crucifixion? How can we deny he's buried when Pilate gave him up? He is not here. 
He is risen. And so we have spent a good deal of time. One other thing that I would bring to your attention quickly, because you're not listening fast enough, is this. How do you account for Saul of Tarsus becoming the Apostle Paul? How do you account for an up-and-coming leader in the um, Jewish movement who persecuted the church, who was gaining status, gaining reputation, uh, uh, attending to the death of Christians, whether he actually killed them with his own hands, we do not know, but he certainly approved of it. How do you account for him turning around and becoming the leading evangelist and missionary to the Gentiles of all things? If you know anything about the first century, how do you account for that? Because he met Jesus, the risen Jesus, on the Damascus Road. Now, the histor historical reality of Christianity is not a leap into the dark, but rather it is a leap into the light relying on the risen Christ. We trust, but we also verify. Now, the meaning of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ occupies our attention next. And so let's think about that for a moment. The first thing that I want to talk about in terms of meaning is the revelation of Jesus' identity and it marks the beginning of a future age. The meaning of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is a revelation of Jesus' identity, that is who he is, and it marks the beginning of a future age. The Jews believed that the end of the, uh, the, the age was the end of history or at the end of history. You remember when Jesus was talking with Martha at Lazarus' tomb and Jesus talked about the resurrection and she said, uh, orthodox in every way for a Jew, we would all know that the resurrection will happen on the last day. Jesus, of course, tells her what? I am the resurrection and the life. And so shocking thing about Jesus's resurrection is that it brought the future forward in the resurrection of Jesus Christ what the Jews hoped would happen at the end of the age God had done for Jesus in the middle of history and this sign that God, uh, God has given to Jesus all the authority on heaven and earth designated him as the son of God with power means that Jesus is the real deal. I hate to use that word, but I can't think of a better one. He is for real. The new age began at Jesus' resurrection and was the first fruits of the future resurrection. He was the firstborn of the new creation, meaning God has invaded and disrupted the present order of things by bringing life in the face of death, justification in the midst of condemnation, hope emerging in the pit of despair, and the reality is Christ has ushered in the age of the future. Not the age that now is, but the age to come has perforated in space and time. The, the future is present in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you ever had people ask you, especially suffering people, and especially members of families of suffering people will often ask the question, why doesn't God do something about this? Why doesn't God fix this? Why doesn't God 
change this? And my answer to them and to you is, he already has. He has set in motion the greatest fix of all time, of the brokenness of the present evil order. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ testifies to that reality and also stamps the approval of God upon the reality of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Secondly, the resurrection constitutes the inauguration of the new creation. Jesus' resurrection brings the beginning of a new world order. It implies an ultimate state with a renewed heavens and earth. The resurrection is an act not only to save people and souls and their bodies, but also to renew creation. God made creation good. It went bad in the fall of Adam. It now survives under a curse. And so God intends to renew his creation through a cosmic resurrection that will mark the end of dystrophy, death, decay. In creation and in the world, the groaning that creation presently experiences, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 17, is the anticipation and hope of the curse being lifted and creation being liberated from its bondage. People have told me, uh, at least early on in my Christian life, I didn't need to worry about things of this world and things of creation because it's all going to be burned up. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it is not all going to be burned up. It's all going to be purified, but it's not going to be annihilated. And if you're a good Reformed person, you understand that everything we do, whether so-called sacred or secular, carries with it a reality that will pass through the purifying fire at the judgment of Jesus Christ, but will remain after us. What we do now counts for eternity. That's why at the end of chapter 15, Paul tells us, always be steadfast steadfast and immovable, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because it's not all going to be burned up. I remember D.L. Moody used to say this, uh, only soon one life will pass, only what's done for Christ will last. It is true that Christ takes our works and mixes them with his work and purifies our works, but our works remain. And that is a glorious truth established. Jesus' body that he died in and was resurrected in was his body. It was recognizable. God doesn't destroy. God doesn't annihilate. God doesn't uh, pulverize. God redeems. That is his heart. He redeems, he sets free, and renews, and remakes. Third, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is really, in reality, part of the objective ground of our salvation. The resurrection is the objective ground of our salvation. You know, most people think that the cross is really the means of salvation, and resurrection is proof that the cross redeems believers from the penalty of sin. 
But the reality is we are saved by, in, and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You cannot separate those events. The resurrection always fits with the cross and is always involved in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Paul says he was delivered unto death for our sins, but was raised again to life for our justification. If Jesus had not been raised, our faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Doesn't Paul say that we're justified and forgiven on account of Jesus' death? Well, certainly he says that. Obviously so. But he says believers are justified and forgiven also on the count, account of Jesus' resurrection. How so? In short, God executes his verdict of condemnation uh, against sin on the cross. And then he issues another verdict called justification in the resurrection by raising Jesus up in the power of the Spirit. God vindicates Jesus as the faithful son and as the righteous sin bearer. Keep in mind that the death and resurrection are representative acts. The Messiah undergoes both on behalf of his people. Thus God's verdict against us is transposed into God's verdict for us. He is for us. Jesus is justified by God, and because we are united to him in his resurrection, we share in that verdict of justification. Here's what this means. The very fact that the tomb's empty, the very fact that Jesus appeared before all these people, the very fact that they saw him ascend to, into heaven at the right hand of God means that as long as Jesus is at the right hand of the Father as the resurrected righteous Savior, our righteousness is protected forever. That's where my righteousness is. It is not here in how I live and what I do and ways in which I try to find God's approval and blessing by trying to do the right thing. No, my righteousness is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that gives me confidence and boldness in my relationship with God. Look at Him. Look at Him. Look at Him, I often say because I'm painfully aware of my own unrighteousness. We are justified because we participate in the justification of the Messiah. And what is true of him is reckoned to be true of his people who are united with him. Why do you think the Bible says that we sit in heavenly places with him? That our life is hidden with Christ and God. Because everything that happened to Jesus has, in one sense, already happened to me. Already. Already. That's why Paul in Romans 8 could speak of us as glorified in the past tense. It's a lead pipe cinch. No other way around it. Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, is our righteousness. He is our vindicator. And so the resurrection is part of the story of how God proves his faithfulness to his covenant promises by vindicating those who trust him. So God's raising of Jesus from the dead was the act in which the justification of all of God's people was contained in a nutshell. How do I know I'm right with God? Is it because I pray, because I try not to sin, because I try to do the right thing, because I want to be obedient, because I desire to be? No. 
Why am I right with God? Because I have stopped relying on anything I could ever do and am totally relying on everything He has done in my place. And that is why the historicity of it, the reality of it, and the experience of it is everything. Somebody could stain the walls with an amen once in a while in there. You guys ain't amen in type, are you? There we got one over here. Had to beg for it. All right. That's why we're reconciled to God through Jesus' death, and we will be saved through Jesus' life. Baptism into Jesus' death also entails union with his resurrection, which is why believers are transferred from being under the power of sin and death to being under the power of righteousness and life. And so, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will also raise believers up in the final day. What is more, Christ died and returned to life so that He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. And thus, resurrection draws people under the redemptive reign of His Lordship. Faith in Christ means we participate in the covenant promises that Christ embodies as the risen one. We are placed in union with Him and adopted into His family, bearing the fruit of righteousness. We are made right with God. So union with Christ is the means of justification from sin, putting us right with God in the raising of His Son. Resurrection marks a transfer of authority. Believers shift from being under captive to the tyranny of evil and death and sin to living under the lordship of Jesus Christ in whom is found life and glory. The resurrection is also an indicator of the Trinitarian nature of salvation. The Father hands over the Son to the cross, and the Father raises the Son by the Spirit. And afterward, the Son pours out the Spirit upon believers, and the risen Son continually mediates between humanity and God the Father. Without the resurrection, the whole Trinitarian salvific plan would be incomprehensive, and the work begun in the life of Jesus would remain incomprehensible. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the objective grounds of our salvation. I like the way that Thomas F. Torrance put it in his book on resurrection in space and time. Now you've got to listen carefully or he'll fly right by you. He's a genius. He's brilliant. He's so brilliant. Sometimes he's intimidating to read. So don't turn it off. Just listen carefully. Here's what he says. The resurrection takes place in space and time, in physical and historical existence. Yet the teaching of the New Testament indicates that it is not merely a great event upon the plane of history, but an act that breaks into history with the powers of another world. It is akin to the creation in the beginning. And the gospel is the good news that God is creating a new world. It is a creative event within creation, an abruptly divine act within history, a decisive deed completely setting at naught all cyclic processes, putting an end to the futility to which they are shut up, but opening and straightening them out in a movement toward consummation. Such a resurrection 
of the incarnate Word of God within the creation of time and space which came into being through Him is inevitably an event of cosmic and unbelievable magnitude. So far as the temporal dimension of creation is concerned, it means that the transformation of all things at the end of time is already impinging upon history, and indeed that the consummation of history has already been inaugurated. And so far as the spatial dimension of creation is concerned, it means that the new creation has already set in so that all things visible and invisible are even now in the grip of the final recreation of the universe. The resurrection of Jesus heralds an entirely new age in which a universal resurrection or transformation of heaven and earth will take place, or rather has already begun to take place. For with the resurrection of Jesus, the new world has already broken in in the midst of the old. What a vision, what an understanding of the meaning of the resurrection. It is a historical event, but it's more than a historical event. It is the inbreaking of the powers of the age to come to fix everything that is broken and wrong and to restore all, ultimately, to a right relationship with the Father. Now, got a third point. Let's look at it quickly. The experience of the power of the resurrection flowing into our lives is evident in several ways. First, for the believer, life has begun in our spiritual life. We have been made alive by the Holy Spirit. We were buried in baptism into death, raised from the dead to a brand new life. Our outer nature is wasting away, but our inner is being renewed. There we go. Because i got to tell you something about this outer nature. It looked really good when I was about 19 i got to tell you, doesn't look, my wife tries to tell me it doesn't look that bad now, but I know. I can look in the mirror. I can see, I can see pictures back when, and my outward body is wasting away. I'm not as strong. I'm not as fast. I'm not as quick. Physically, I'm losing. I wear glasses. I don't hear quite as well. Sometimes it's selective, but I don't hear quite as well. I still taste well. I can still smell, which is wonderful. But it's not like it was. But I want to tell you something. If you could see the me inside of me, boy. If I could see the you inside of you and what you are becoming and what you will be. C.S. Lewis said if we ever saw an angel, we'd fall on the ground and worship. If we ever saw a glorified human being, we'd run out of the room scared and dive under the chairs. That's what's happening. It's already happening. It's already happening. And so when we plant people in their final resting place on earth, it is a planting because one day that body will split the grave, renewed in beauty and glory, to be with Jesus forever. This imparts hope to believers. There is nothing like the hope that is sure and certain and assured to us. Christ is the prototype. He is the first fruits. What will happen to us 
has already happened to him and us in union with him. The final victory is already ours. Since Christ, since we are raised with Christ, he tells us to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. We're to set our mind on things above. In other words, our focus in this life, our hope in this life, is to realize, even in the midst of this coronavirus, as horrible as it is, as painful as it is, as cruel as it is in terms of taking people's lives and snuffing them out. There is a fate worse than dying. That is to die without hope. Paul tells the believers at Thessalonica not to grieve as other men grieve without hope, but to grieve with hope. Yes, when I lose a loved one, I will grieve, I will cry, it will hurt, I will miss them. But I know this, one day I will see him again. One day I will be with Jesus forever. And that is the great hope of the resurrection. That's why Christians sing about it. That's why they give God praise about it. That's why we gather on this Easter. That's why we miss everybody who isn't here. Because the more of us that gather together to celebrate this truth, the richer and deeper and fuller and more impactful it is upon us because we were made for community. Somebody asked me a few weeks ago if I wanted them to put pictures of all of our people in the seats. I said no, but I kind of regret that now because I didn't know it was going to go on this long. I would kind of like to see the people who are. So maybe you should send in a picture. Somebody should take that on as a project to put pictures in every seat so I can still remember that you're out there and you're listening. But our great hope, our hope beyond all hope, is that one day, we will be with him. What is already true in him will be true of us and is already true. And so knowing the resurrection of Jesus, experiencing the power of his resurrection, Paul addresses in Philippians 3 where he says, I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection being made conformable to his death. Paul was striving to win the prize. What is the prize he's striving to win? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to comprehend it and to experience the ultimate reality of it, the final reality of it. And so, when we talk about what we have talked about today, the reality, verifiability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the historicity of it, the meaning of it, there's so much more, you know, I've got three sermons and three points. Don't send me an email telling me I already know. I got it. But I love every one of them and just thought they all needed to be said today in this time in this place. So, trust but verify. Trust but verify. The resurrection needed to be verified by eyewitnesses who could testify to the empty tomb and the empty grave clothes. Ours is a faith founded on an event that took place in space and time and history, and it began with an angel politely opening the tomb so that we could look into the empty space and see that he was no longer there. It happened. 
It really happened. And it changes everything. Everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality of this abiding truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Forgive us, Father, for our fear, our doubt, our trepidation, our insecurity, because we are but creatures and you are the creator. We are but sinners and you are holy. But we thank you that Jesus has already done everything necessary. And we're already there. We are already there. We just don't know it yet. We hadn't experienced the fullness and the consummation of it. But we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, Ephesians tells us. And because of that, we know that our righteousness prevails before the Father. Because it's not in us, it's in Him. And that's what gives us unshakable hope. Now, Father, continue to bless us as we worship You. In Jesus' name, amen.